We're in Luke 21. Open your Bibles to Luke 21. I have notes for the whole chapter, but I don't think I'm going to get through it. And to segue into a lighter topic, we're going to talk about the end of the world. <laughs> now, Luke 21 is a parallel passage to Matthew 24, which we all know about where the disciples asked Jesus the signs of the end and the signs of his coming. It's interesting that people who don't ever go to church, who don't know the Bible at all, when there are suddenly wars or earthquakes, they run to Matthew 24. Is this it? Wars, famines, everyone knows those signs. They've seen a Discovery Channel program or something. And so this would be Luke's version of that message. Now, because Matthew is written to Jews, there are more Jewish references in there. A couple of thing, things about the temple or the Sabbath. And Luke leaves those out because he's not writing to Jews. But it's the same message. Luke 21.36 is, to me, the goal, the point of this whole message. It's not just, here's some crazy stuff that's going to go on in the end times. It's a warning so that we can get through it and ultimately be ready for the main purpose of our life, which he says, Luke 21.36, watch therefore, or stay alert, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So the world is going to go crazy. It's going crazy now, isn't it? Now, I want you to be able to get through this time and not be distracted Remember that this world is not your home. Easy to forget that, isn't it? I pastored in Portland for 23 years, and I live in Vancouver, and to drive through Portland and to see all the homeless camps, people have set up camps as if that is their permanent home. And while you might feel sorry for them, how many of you have done the same thing? You've set up camp in this world as if this is permanent. This is temporary. It just lasts so long, it starts to feel permanent, like the homeless do. They lose hope of it ever being different than it is. Even Paul talked about living in these bodies is like living in a tent. That when this tent is put off, we're going to receive a new body, a permanent dwelling. Jesus said, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many what? Mansions. It means dwelling places. He's not talking about a, a beautiful three-car garage house uh, with a sauna in it. It's talking about a dwelling place, a new body, a permanent place to dwell. 
But the goal is in the time that you live here to make the most of his purpose for your life. And then ultimately we're going to stand before him and see him face to face. That is what the Bible calls the hope of your calling, the hope of our calling. John said in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him, Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have that hope, that's your ultimate hope, is to see him face to face, then automatically what it does is it causes you to live a life that has a light touch on this world. You're not going to get caught up in things that are inconsistent with seeing him face to face. Yesterday, I did a wedding for a young couple that usually sits over here. I expected them to be in church today, but they're not. I don't, I don't know. They're backslidden, I guess. Luke and Valerie usually sit over here. There's something about knowing a bride, knowing has a wedding date set. She starts to live with a certain simplicity, clarity. I'm going to keep myself for that day. We are the bride of Christ. We are keeping ourselves for that day in which we're going to see him. And we're going to all attend what the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. But in the meantime, trouble is going to break out in this world. And living in this world, if I look at our country, the word confusion comes to my mind in our country, and it's really global right now. The loss of a commitment to the Bible in American history has caused a confusion. That word, think of it, there is a confusion in the purpose of the family. There's a confusion in the purpose of the church. There is a confusion in gender. People don't know what gender they are. I mean, think of how much that word confusion has overshadowed every purpose and role in lives. People don't know the value or the purpose of their own life. They're confused. And that confusion just creates all kind of chaos in our country. Confusion. We can be harsh and judgmental of people that get caught up in those things. Now, at this point in my life, I feel compassion. I feel sorry for those people. Because that's what they know. For many of them, that's just all they know. They don't know the hope of Jesus Christ. You do. Just a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Phil had a, a whole program. I don't watch Dr. Phil every day, but I happen to catch this one. My wife does. And it was a strange program. 
an L.A. school teacher, a woman who wasn't making enough income, making a good living to support herself, went into the sex industry with, you know, the, the whole oper- whatever there is for that stuff, and she was making tons of money in that entertainment. Now, that happens, and people do that, I understand. But here's the strange thing in her thinking. She was, she was so caught up in this confusion, she said she was now being true to herself. And to make it even worse, Dr. Phil asked the audience, how many of you think this is okay for a school teacher to do this? And about half of the audience raised their hands That is confusion, confusion. Our mind and our own heart is able, through the slow process, to normalize sin. We are all capable of doing that, remember. We look at somebody else who is way off into crazy things, but remember, you and I are just like that. We are able to normalize things that are unpleasing to God. We've all done it. We all do do it. But amazingly, the Lord's able to help us through this life, to even open our eyes. If you had those moments in your life where your eyes were suddenly opened and you thought, what am I doing? Have you ever had those moments? We've all had those moments, and that process in the Christian life is called sanctification. God loves us when we're a mess. We're saved by simple faith in him, but we're still a mess, like a baby with a dirty diaper. And then the Lord begins the process of helping us to grow up. And... Over time, our eyes are opened and we start to see, why am I doing that? I don't want to do that anymore. And that through your life, you are seeing that you are becoming more and more like Jesus. And it is not finished until you stand before him, physically stand before him and see him face to face. That's the end of 1 Corinthians 13, where now we see through a glass darkly. We see him, but not clearly. And the more you see Jesus, the reason we study the word of God is because it's about Jesus. And Jesus said that, that the whole record of the scriptures is about him, that we would see him, that we would believe in him, trust him. And the ultimate hope I have is that one day I'm not going to be like this anymore. Don't say amen. We could all say, I'm not what I used to be, but I'm still not what I'm going to be. That is the the big word, sanctification. We want to get through this life and ultimately 
see Jesus. I have three adult daughters, eight grandkids and one on the way. One of my daughters and her, her, her family are down at, gonna go to Disneyland tomorrow. And I thought, boy, it would be perfect to like, if, you, if your kids are old enough and you go into Disneyland at the beginning of the day and you say, look, if they're teenagers, look, you go do what you want. We're gonna ride your crazy rides. We'll see you at the end of the day. Meet us at the gate. Now, there's a lot of crazies around the park. You have to stay alert. There's a lot of people waiting to take your purse or rip you off. So you're gonna get through the day, have fun. And when you see the lights flicker or hear the announcements, we are gonna see you again at the end of the day. And I thought, that's kind of like what Jesus is saying. I'm going to go prepare a place for you, but I'm going to see you at the end of the day. And if my kids aren't there with me at the end of the day, I'm going to go find them. Now, the seven-year tribulation, when all hell breaks loose and the, the wars, famines, pestilence, all those things, it is the final warning for the world to repent before judgment comes. And even in the severity of the judgments in the book of Revelation, it is to shake you up and say, get out of here. Get out of here. But the ultimate purpose of Revelation is not just the judgment of the world, it's the restoration of Israel. Did you know that? That's why the Jewish references in Matthew 24 and even, say, Revelation 7 about the 144,000 from the 12 tribes, men of 12 tribes. And it's exciting to get into this. Today, I'm just kind of introducing these things to you, and uh, we'll get back to more of the details next Sunday. But isn't it amazing how patient the Lord is? while we act like we're, we're making a permanent home here when it's not permanent. So Luke 21 is a, a Bible prophecy passage. You know, so much of the Bible is prophecy. Prophecy in the sense of telling us events to come. But there are many of those events that have already happened. But... This story of God becoming man, dying for us on the cross, restoring us to a relationship with the Father, going to heaven to prepare a place for us, and coming back to get us, it's a pretty crazy story, isn't it? Admit it. Now, there are other religions with crazy stories. So how do I know which one to believe? I think that's a good question. Don't ever say to somebody, why do you believe the Bible? Because my pastor told me. I'm pretty awesome, but that's not a good enough reason. That's not a good enough reason. Prophecy is given to us to prove 
that the Bible we have is from God. Because you see, only God can tell the future. There are actually thousands of other gods in the world who are really just demons impersonating gods. The Bible talks about that, and Paul talked about that. The other pagan religions have had gods which even spoke to them. So demons impersonate gods. John called it doctrines of demons in 1 John, and we're to test the spirits to know whether they are of God. So how do we know this spoken word, inspired word, is from the God or a God? Demons can't tell the future. Our God, the one who created heaven and earth, knows the future. And I can show you other passages in the Old Testament where even the prophets would challenge the pagan priests, go ahead and let your, let your God tell us the things that are coming. Go ahead. We just kind of challenge them, mock them. And we know that pagan deities or even mediums or other entities that speak through people that channel can tell past historical events, accurate events, and it seems like they're actually speaking from God. Well, any demon knows the past, just like you can tell me the past of something. I can read a history book and tell you things that have happened in the past. That, that is different from telling the future. And so we have tested the Bible Events that were spoken that have already come to pass in detail. We covered that even in the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, which just happened a few days before uh, this passage here in Luke 21. The day of Jesus' entry was predicted in Daniel. And so, the scene is set. We are now days before the cross. Maybe just two or three days. The disciples and Jesus are in the Temple Mount area at the beginning. This sets the stage for the disciples even asking the questions about the end times. And I'm going to read the first six verses of Luke 21. And I think that's all we're going to get done today, but this will set us up. He looked, looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
this is amazing because even in Luke 21, we have what you might call a near prophecy and a far off prophecy. And many of the prophets would give a near prediction and a far prediction. It's the near prediction that would prove that they actually were speaking from God. And Moses would say, this is how you're going to know a prophet when he comes. Look up Deuteronomy 18. It says, how are you going to know when a prophet comes speaking a word from God? And virtually all of the cults of the world were founded by people, men or women, who claimed to be prophets and actually made predictions that have failed. I, I don't know why they did it, because they were really setting up their own exposure. We could go down the list of world cults that have founders made predictions, predictions have failed. Biblically, that's enough for me not to listen to anything else they have to say. And Moses, Deuteronomy 18, look it up. He would say, if a prophet says this shall happen and it doesn't, you shall not listen to him. You shall not be afraid of him. And so Jesus comes on the scene. How do we know you really are the Messiah? Here is an example. Well, while everyone is, you know, just amazed at the beauty of the temple, he's saying, guys, you're distracted. This is beautiful, but there's coming a day in which all of the stones of the temple are going to be thrown down. Now, that's a radical thing to say, because those stones weighed many, many tons. It wasn't just like a, a cinder block wall where you could push everything over. I've been in England a lot where they have all those stone walls out in the countryside, out in the dales, and you can just walk along and push the stones off the walls. These stones are many, many tons. And so the Romans did conquer Jerusalem, destroyed the city. The general, Titus Aspasian, told them not to touch the temple, but a soldier shot a flaming arrow into a window in the temple, and it caught fire, and it was so hot that it burned the gold in the temple so hot that it ran between the cracks of the stones. And if not for that gold running in between the stones, why would the Roman soldiers push down every stone off of off of its, its structure. Just to prove a point, they wouldn't have said, well, Jesus said it was going to happen this way, so we better do it. And that happened exactly as Jesus said in 70 AD. So that's a near prediction that causes us to pay attention to the far-off predictions, which still haven't happened yet. Just to touch on this lesson, Jesus wanted the disciples to know, don't get caught up in the beauty of the temple or don't get distracted by the wealthy gifts of the rich men. Because what he says is, that woman who was poor, who gave two mites, gave more than all of those wealthy together. 
You see, God's economy is different from our economy. We kiss up to the rich because we need them. As if God is dependent on the rich to make anything happen in the church. God is able to use all of us in our giving. And of course, of course, the, your, the Lord uses the poor and the rich, but we're all the same. So what God is looking at is not the amount of the gift. I want you to catch this. God is not looking at the amount of the gift. He's looking at how much it costs the giver. Do you hear me? In God's economy, what matters is the amount of sacrifice it was to the giver. We get all excited. That person, that wealthy person gave all of this. God is going, I see that widow, that woman. This, it, this reminds me of my mother who didn't work. My father was an alcoholic. My mother had no money. And yet when we went to church, my mother would give something at church. And it was important to her to give something. And I know to God, to my mother, that was everything she had. And I know to God, he has rewarded her for it. Ultimately comes the day in which you will be rewarded for the sacrifice you have made. And you might give a little bit and you're thinking, what does this matter? Does this, does this really matter? Well, it does to God. And Jesus saw her. And I love these little lessons in the Bible that Jesus saw her. Do you ever feel invisible in life? Like nobody even knows I'm here. God knows. And I hope that matters to you. That even if nobody paid attention to you, you know that the Lord sees you. And that what you do for the Lord matters. Of course, it matters to the church. And all of us together have pulled together to work together. I love just that 1 Corinthians 13, that we're all members of the body of Christ. Just to touch really quickly on the, the things we'll look at next week. We all know the signs of Matthew 24. They're here as well in Luke 21. The wars, the famines, the pestilence, the earthquakes. Are you watching the news lately? We all know these things are happening, right? These things, the pot is boiling. The wars, which means world wars, not just wars. Famine, pestilence, sound familiar, deadly diseases, earthquakes, and religious or spiritual deception is a fifth sign. What's interesting right now is that the war, the famine, and the pestilence are not just happening, they're being manipulated. Do you know that? I don't want to scare you with conspiracy stuff. But world powers, even just this week, 
Ever heard of the World Economic Forum? Davos? World leaders are meeting this week to give instruction to the nations about how to bring about globalism. Because you see, the populations of the world are too stupid to govern themselves. And it's interesting, I, I think it's amazing that the enemies of globalism, which is for your good, is overpopulation. The family is an enemy of globalism. And to go really out there, they would be perfectly happy to reduce the world's population. They want you to stop eating meat. Did I take a left turn? But these are weird things. But actually, Paul wrote to Timothy and said the same things. Forbidding to eat meat. Forbidding to marry. These strange things are happening right now. And Jesus said, watch. In other words, look around you. Pay attention. Pray so that you're not caught up. I know we, we are in favor of fairness and equality and those things which are valuable things. And in fact, the social movement didn't event equality invent equality. It's Jesus. It's the gospel, who, by the way, has elevated the status of women, not social justice. When Jesus forgave women, told them not to stone the prostitute, that was radical. That was radical. World religions are, are unjust. It is the church that has changed the face and seen every person as equal and valuable in the life of God. In the church, there is no distinction of rich or poor. There's no distinction of male or female in the sense of, uh, yes, we're different, but distinct in the sense of this one's more important than this one. There's no preference. There is no, there's no race that gets special treatment. In the Bible, in God's eyes, we are all valuable and all valued and loved before his eyes. So when you hear these stories and arguments of equality, please don't get caught up in those lies. They're trying to imitate what the church has already been doing for 2,000 years. You are all valued. This woman is honored in Jesus' story above all these rich men. We are campers. Just enjoy the campsite, stay warm. 
As long as we have good coffee and a good Bible study, we're going to make it through, okay? Amen? Okay, we'll get into the signs next week, but let's stand and close in a worship song.